Home is where connections are made, memories are formed, and ideas are born. And no one knows home better than NFM. Thanks for tuning in to I Am Home, the podcast that goes deeper than trends and dives into what it means to make your house a home. Tyler Weiskup here from NFM headquarters with NFM for life, Rebecca Sudbeck. Hi, Tyler. <laughs> hey, Becca. And Hillary Waltemath, Visual Display General Manager. Hey. Hey, Hillary. And today we're thrilled to bring you a thought leadership episode featuring Todd Combs of Berkshire Hathaway and Geico fame. Uh, very exciting. So we're bringing out our special thought leadership host, Amy Myers, our Chief Marketing Officer. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Amy. Again, this is going to be a really awesome episode. But before we get to that, let me tell you why we're even doing this podcast. And that's because NFM is more than just your everything home store. We're in the business of improving lifestyles because your home life should be your best life. Learn more at NFM.com. And we're on with Todd Combs. Hey, Todd. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Uh, at this point, uh, I would like to introduce you and kind of get the audience to know a little bit about you. So we sure. put together a little bio and feel free to like correct us if we, if we get anything <laughs> wrong here, but I think we did okay. Right out of the gate. <laughs> <laughs> so Todd Combs is a, a multi-billion dollar investment manager with Berkshire Hathaway Incorporated. Uh, he's also president and chief executive officer of Geico. Uh, before joining Berkshire Hathaway, Todd formed Castle Point Capital, an investment partnership he founded in 2005 to manage capital for endowments family foundations, uh, and institutions. He partnered and, uh, oh, sorry, he holds degrees in finance and multinational business operations from Florida State University and an MBA from Columbia University. Uh, personally speaking, we like to try to like d dig a little bit and, and Todd, it's, it's like we're getting not a lot out there. So uh, we couldn't find much, but I love this bit of information from your high school days. Uh, you were a member of, of Speech. Uh, yes, I love that photo out there. Phi Beta Chai Clubs. And then I was just finding out from Becca, you know, you're into running, you're a biking enthusiast. Uh, so we've got a little bit of that going on as well. And then uh, lastly, Todd, you also serve on the J.P. Morgan Chase Board of Directors and all sorts of other things. Um, so that's just a little bit about you. Anything important that we missed? No, wife and kids, uh, you know, and uh, we'll probably get to that in the Q&A. But uh, I think you had a minor in psychology. Oh, uh, can't leave that out. So, uh, yeah, yeah. We've so, got questions uh, related to that. Though. <laughs> yeah. So we'll I'll pound it over to Amy to uh, jump into questions. Thank you, Tyler. Yeah, of course. So. I wanted to start with what I'm calling like your Berkshire Hathaway origin story. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and that journey. It's like a superhero kind it, of thing. Right? <laughs> really cool. It seemed like there were two kind of main, main points on um, your journey mm -hmm. to there. And, and mm -hmm. the first was when you were at Columbia and Warren came and spoke and yeah. I know you didn't meet him at the time, but he, right. that, that idea that he said to read was it is it 500 a day or 500 a week, week. it says a week, a week. okay a week. definitely want to i saw it that. i saw it yeah. in multiple ways i'm like man that's 500 a day is a yeah, little a over the top yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the second is when years later when you did that cold call um to Tar charlie munger yeah. and where that went so yeah can you talk about both of those stories and yeah. how that how that happened yeah life? so i'll start with the first one which is um uh, I didn't really meet Warren because, as you said, he came and spoke uh, to professors, legendary value investing professor at Columbia, Professor Greenwald, who's this larger than life figure. And uh, he would have uh, is the it was he's now since retired a couple of years, but is the preeminent value investing course uh, really anywhere. And he'd have uh, the first half of the class, he would talk about value investing and a very, and it would be case studies, you know, uh, Bud versus Coors. He didn't do this, but it, be, it could be Geico versus Progressive, you know, et cetera, it's GM versus Ford, et cetera, you get it. And then the second half, he would have uh, over kind of 12 or 15 weeks, legendary speakers come in. And so it was everybody from Marty Whitman and Michael Price and uh, Seth Klarman, and then he'd always finish with Warren. And so there were, I think, I'm going off recollection here, about 65 of us or so in the class in the value investing program. And so Warren came and spoke. That would have been the fall of, uh, of um, boy, I'm, I'm taking this back now to uh, 
to 2000 and 2001, I think 2001, because uh, I graduated in 02. So I think it was the fall of 01 right after 9-11, if I remember correctly. And he came and spoke and you'd fire away with questions just like he does at the annual meeting. And uh, the very last question, I remember that, was that uh, somebody said, how do you spend your time? And he had brought in this kind of rumpled accordion folder. Just it was a complete mess. I remember that. It was just <laughs> had papers everywhere spewing out of it. And he he said, well, you know, I, I read newspapers and this and that. And, and they kind of had a follow up of like, no, but how do you actually really spend your time? You can't read 12. And he turned around and he picked this accordion folder up and he said, well, I read, uh, I just read, I read. And, and the compounding of that knowledge uh, accrues over time. And cause it never goes away. There's no decay rate and so forth and so on. And he said, I don't know, what is this about 500 pages or so? And he said, uh, he said, each and every one of you can do it. It's free, um, you know, um, but most people don't because they get distracted and he, you know, kind of used his Socratic method then to go into, um, you know, why focus is so important. And um, from that day forward, I, that really had a huge impact on me. It was a real epiphany for me. And I thought, you know, it was almost like I took it like a challenge. He definitely mm-hmm. didn't mean it as a challenge, but, <laughs> but I took it that way to be like, you know, I'm going to start doing this. And so um, I started from then. I at first I was very, you know, meticulous about it, like counting the pages and everything. But, you know, you get then now there's only one or two things that I'm still reading today that I had started back then because you evolve and so forth and so on. But it's still about the same amount, give or take. So, yeah. You actually took action from that. That's what I think is interesting. Yeah. 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 I think that, uh, and he meant it that way. Like if you, a lot of, you can, you can either approach things actively or passively. And I think that, um, you know, I think a lot of people um, can take it passively and and probably a lot of people that were there that day, all, they certainly all remember Warren. I don't know how many would actually remember that comment and then how many actually acted on it. I don't know. But um, I think that, you know, there was a lot of fame around this 10,000 hour rule that Malcolm Gladwell kind of made famous. It actually happened to have been a Florida State professor, uh, K. Anders Erickson, if I remember his name correctly, that came up with that. But the real point was in the 10,000 hours, people became kind of stuck on that. To me, the point was active versus passive. So whether you're learning to play golf or you're trying to get better at running or cycling or investing or whatever you're trying to do, if you do it actively versus passively, you pull those things forward and you you create a tighter feedback loop on your mistakes and your learning process and it becomes more iterative. That's what I took away from it at least. Hmm. So. And then second big point. So that kind of got to change your trajectory on like how you thought about yourself and how you read and educate yourself. But For sure. Then yeah. the 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 cold call, if I'm understanding right, and tell yeah. me if I've got the, the story yeah, no, wrong, that's right. she reached out and said, you know, would love to meet. Uh, tell us about that story. Yeah, it's, uh, I'll try, there's a lot I could say in that. So I had been running, so I started my own fund in uh, October of 05. Uh, I had run it through the global financial crisis and I was pretty fried. Uh, we had we had done quite well, uh, but it took everything out of me. And uh, I was working, you know, 100 plus hour weeks, sleeping at the office, et cetera, et cetera. And I knew like it was part of my dream was to always run my own investment partnership. But um, and, and the process and the journey of going through that and, and uh, doing it yourself, painting your own portrait, so to speak. And I had done that and I had lived in dog years uh, during that global financial crisis. Everyone, you know, did, to be clear. It wasn't just me, but uh, but it felt those five years uh, and there were amazing ups and downs and throughout the whole thing. And, and we did quite, quite well. But as I said, it took everything out of me. And what uh, I had... Uh, experience at that time, you know, at Progressive and running insurance. And obviously I'd followed Berkshire for a long, long time. And so to me, uh, I had this, again, kind of an epiphany one day that, well, if I know insurance um, and and having seen what Warren and Charlie did with Float and so forth, uh, that's a much, much better way to do it for, you know, permanent capital and not having to post monthly results and not, I love my LPs, but not having to, you know, constantly kind of uh, live up to those expectations and standards and just kind of changing the dynamic uh, quite a bit. And so that was my plan. And I had some phenomenal partners that were also experts uh, in financial services and in insurance and Stone Point Capital. And so I kind of knew that I was going to go that route. And then the question was how? Uh, and so I thought, well, gee, I really, um, 
you know, obviously I'd always wanted to meet Charlie. Uh, I held him in such high regard and I was going to be on the West Coast. I in no way, shape or form thought I would actually get to meet him to be clear. <laughs> and I didn't have any in or anything like that. I just called and uh, and talked to his assistant for a little while. And, and the funny thing that I recall was that she was really trying to vet me for what I wanted, because of course, everyone's always trying to sell you something. And <laughs> she didn't believe me at first. I got her to believe me. And so a couple of days later, I was in a meeting out there, uh, Experian, the credit bureau was a big position of mine. And I got an email from her and said, Charlie can meet tomorrow morning at the California club at 7am. And so my wife and I were uh, staying at the Montage in Laguna at the time. And uh, so I left and went up and we, Charlie and I met for six hours. Wow. It, it started at 7 a.m. They cleared all the breakfast. They oh brought lunch. They cleared the lunch. <laughs> and uh, it was, it was obviously, um, and I, I really had no agenda or anything other than we talked about life. We talked about family. We talked about the sciences. I remember we talked a lot about the universe. Uh, I had this book on me at the time that I read on the flight out there called Just Six Numbers. And it was about how the universe can only exist in this way because gravity has to be, you know, if you take it out 60 digits or whatever, it has to end in the precisely the way that it does or else the universe doesn't. And so we talked like for 45 minutes or something about that. And at the very end, maybe the last hour, we talked about investing. And he's like, by the way, what do you do? <laughs> and, uh, and I told him, you know, that I was, what I wanted to do, which was I had a half, a little over half billion dollar fund at the time, which could have been a lot larger, but, you know, we didn't take in fund to funds money. We didn't have uh, European fund to funds, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and he said, why? And I think that really struck him because most people, if you could be a billion or a billion and a half dollar fund, you do that instead of having half billion. So I remember I didn't mean for it to strike him that way. And I wasn't, but that's right. And then we, that started a conversation around, uh, you know, my insurance background and, and looking to do something kind of with permanent capital and so forth. And um, what was the why to that? Why you hadn't done that? Why hadn't I? Uh, well, why, why hadn't I already done the insurance company yeah. thing? Well, a couple of reasons. One, um, <laughs> I was still building up my personal capital. Um, because I worked at a fund for three years and then this fund for five, I was building up my track record, um, from running this fund. And then three, uh, in no particular order was trying to survive the global financial crisis and do the best I could for my LPs. Um, so I didn't really have any time, uh, you know, and this was the fall of, uh, it was, it was, no, sorry, spring of, of uh, 2010. It was before the summer. And then, uh, you know, so we met for six hours or so. And uh, Charlie said, stay in touch. And I thought he was just being nice. And about a week <laughs> later, I was back in my office in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. And he called me out of the blue, completely out of the blue. And I picked up. I thought maybe it was a prank. And uh, <laughs> and uh, Costco had reported earnings. Of course, Charlie's a huge Costco fan. And so we talked about, and I, even though I was running a financials fund, I was so into investing, I would look at companies outside of financials. And so I had just serendipitously had looked at their uh, report, their quarterly earnings that day. And we talked about Costco for a little while. And then he, he had a bunch of questions that he had for me that he hadn't kind of gotten to the first time about investing and life and stuff like that. So he said, you know, next time you're out here, you know, we should meet again. So one thing led to another and we ended up, I met him again on the West coast and uh, we met at his house uh, and we would catch up over the phone. And we probably did that a dozen times or so before one day he finally said, uh, you should meet Warren. And um, were they but, all marathon sessions like the six hours or did they? They weren't, they bit. weren't all six hours. They got, <laughs> we got them tighter. We got them down to two or so hours, maybe two to three hours. Oh, that's or something a significant like amount that. of time. Yeah. 12 yeah. times. Yeah. yeah. A couple hours. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie, Char, I mean, for me, it was, just, we would just fly, um, right. mm -hmm. you know, because Charlie is just such a, obviously a fountain of knowledge and a true Renaissance man. I mean, you can literally talk about anything. In fact, that book, just six numbers, we started trying, and he said, you know, they forgot the seventh thing. And so like, <laughs> yeah. do something right. like that. Right. And almost any book I mentioned, he had either read or read five books related to it or something like that. But I guess the important thing to note for your listeners or what have you is that, and there are no, it kind of goes back to my original uh, auspices for calling him. I, I, I didn't even know why there was no pretense as to why I was meeting him. So the 12th time we were talking and he said, uh, you should talk to Warren. I was really thinking, you know, I had these top names 
in my fund, like Experian and MasterCard, Visa, and so forth, that were quite, uh, there were a lot of analogies to names that Berkshire would, would that uh-huh. Warren would own. And so I was thinking all along, in fact, even up to the point he said, go talk to Warren that, and, and when I flew out to see Warren, that it was about, they were really interested in one of these names and that there was kind of, uh, and including when I first, yeah, when I first sat down with Warren and I don't want to trump your question, but, uh, but we started talking about Experian. And I thought mm-hmm. and Equifax had been on the market and he had done the Marmon deal and it was all part of that same thing. So I, I totally assumed that was the reason for all these conversations having no, so I never felt like I was interviewing, I guess right. is what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh. That was, the it was they were just conversations. We were just having And what's the time difference from like your first cold call to the. Oh, from to reaching Warren. out to Charlie to Warren yeah. is, was probably uh, it's a good question. It's a couple months, three months, four months. That's a wow. lot of meetings in a short amount of time. Yeah. 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 But so, they were fun. Yeah, so you, yeah. <laughs> there were conversations, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So when you, came to, when you came to beat Warren in Omaha, you had no idea that that was even a possibility. No, none. Yeah. No, none. Which helped me because otherwise, yeah, yeah I would have been too. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently. Uh, I think it was Julie Louis-Dreyfus, you know, Seinfeld and Veep mm-hmm. fame. And she was talking about, they were talking about bombing auditions. And when you really, really want the part yeah. mm-hmm. is exactly when you don't get it because you choke, you know? Yeah. And so no, under no circumstance, I, I was nervous. Don't get me wrong. I'm mm-hmm. not saying I wasn't, but I honestly to God thought it was coming to talk about, and I knew my stuff when it came right. to the yeah. names I owned, obviously. So <laughs> I felt comfortable there, but uh, that's what I thought I was coming for. Yeah. And then it was at that meeting that he ended up offering you. Yeah, it was the first role. meeting with Warren. That like was about you got seven, an offer. That, that was about hour. a seven-hour meeting. And uh came and it, around 9.30 or 10. We sat in his office for a couple hours. Literally didn't talk about st- stocks at all. We talked about life and family. And uh, I, I was born in Peoria, Illinois. So there's a lot of Midwest, you know, connections and so forth. So we talked a lot about that. And he said, do you want to go to lunch? And so I had no idea how long it would be or anything. And so at this point, you know, great you get to go to lunch and and he talked a lot about berkshire and and the past the present the future you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and then that was a couple hours give or take and then we got back to his office and he's like when's your flight and i said don't worry about that and uh, <laughs> i'll move my flight <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and so we got back we sat in his office for a couple hours and that's when we really start talking about stocks and names and how i think about investing how he thinks about investing and he'd pull out he'd, he'd throw out random names and how would you think about this and that and we went through my top five ten list etc cetera, etc cetera. and at the very end he pulled out uh Lou Simpson's contract and Lou, Lou had retired from Berkshire, I don't know, maybe six months before that, a year before that, mm-hmm. something like that. And, um, and that's when, uh, he, and this is, this, this goes to show even at, I guess I was 39 at that point, maybe how still naive I was. He said, you know, we we're thinking about, you know, bringing in, you know, manager, you know, would you have anyone in mind? And I said, oh yeah, I could think of two or three people for you, you know? <laughs> and he kind of looked at me like, is this guy playing baby leagues? Well, you missed about, the tone right, about, right there. Totally, totally. It's my lack of EQ sometimes. But yeah, he's always yeah, thinking about you. And I just complained. I would have never. So that even, even after six hours, yeah. I still didn't get it, I guess is the point. But <laughs> that must have. So where did your head go from there? Because that, that's such a change in your mindset in the moment. Yeah, I mean, we had, uh, you know, our oldest, uh, my wife is April, and our oldest was in second grade at the time. We had pretty good roots, deep roots in Connecticut at the time. And I still had my fund. I had partners. I had LPs. I have, you know, obligations. And now I thought about some of that because, you know, to the aforementioned, you know, insurance company and changing the structure and so forth. But your mind races, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh so, and, and Warren was fantastic about the whole thing. This is so Warren. This tells you everything. Like you see what, what you get is what you see. He says, we know, don't make any rash decisions. It might've been a Wednesday, some weekday, Tuesday, Wednesday, something like that. He said, go home and think about it. And, um, and then, you know, let's connect, you know, early next week and come and hit me with the tough questions, you know? And I think he would have been uh, 80 or so at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, so he called, I was out doing some yard work actually on a Sunday and uh, I came in and April uh, was talking. So I thought it was my father. And so I go about, you see where this is going. It was, it was Warren. He called to kind of talk to her. He knew exactly how to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so, and then, and then, uh, you know, when, when, so we, we 
I, I did. I hit him with uh, the tough questions and we had, he was always very open, always very honest. Again, you get what you see. And, uh, and then I guess the point I'd, uh, I, I, want to make here is that uh so great that when i joined berkshire he said why don't you in april come out you know thanksgiving weekend if you don't have plans and we had uh, and he took us out to dinner and you know it's just like you're part of the family Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. yeah joined in yeah quick decision then it was yeah over over three to five days or something like that yeah wow yeah and so when because I was reading about like the announcement so Uh monday october 25th i don't know how much time that was between when yeah. you would, um, it was probably pretty short sure. within two to four weeks or something like that. As I recall, my memory's a little fuzzy with it, but yeah, something like exactly. that. Yeah. So it's suddenly announced on that Monday press release goes out and you're sort of the head fake candidate, you yeah. know, <laughs> sure was. <laughs> the, the yeah. Unexpected. Yeah. Um, and nowhere. they're digging up high school photos of you to, to post what, yeah. what, did you feel that instantly? Like, were you getting calls uh, and yeah. Yeah. What was that like? To yeah, it was harder so on my wife uh, than it was on me, right? Because I told her, like, this could be, there's going to be a lot here. There's going to be, it's going to feel like a wave. And I think she, at, at first, uh, she, if she were sitting here, she, she, she'd admit she did, didn't fully realize maybe the ramifications it of it. Yeah. And then when you have reporters, uh, we were not on a private street. We were on a public street. It's a very nice public street, but mm-hmm. it was still a public street. And so when there's Bloomberg reporters and they're like parked outside taking pictures and you have young children, it yeah. just feels invasive. Mm-hmm. Like everything, you know, there's all kinds of psychology around this, right? When it's your world, you see everything through your world. And even though in retrospect, I don't want to say it wasn't a big deal, like it comes, it goes, it passes, et cetera. At, in the moment, it felt I'm sure those quite days were overwhelming. Huge. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you want to protect you. our kids were quite young. They were pre-KK and second grade at the time. And so, um, you know, so they, it's just a lot to go from zero to a million right away like that. And so, um, and we in no way, shape or form were prepared for it or anything, but you get through it and it's all fine and innocent at the end of the day. Right. So, and How I was- How long did it last, that sort of intensity of media- yeah, probably a, it was a, at least over a month because I remember then we had Warren sent me the board materials and we had the board meeting uh, in late 2010 around the holidays uh, here in Omaha. And I remember he asked me to sit down uh, with Carol Loomis and, and I said, well, you know, part of our agreement was no media. And uh, as I recall saying, and he said, <laughs> and he said uh, well, I think this will help actually with the other situation. And he of course was right. Um, and so um, it, uh, it, it, and I was relatively well known uh, in the investment community. But then there's this much, it's, it's, you're always a fish in some fishbowl, right? Mm-hmm. So I was, I was, if you had asked almost any LP, family foundation, et cetera, et cetera, they would have known me or the fund or whatever, right. but I was not Seth Klarman. I was not, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. I wasn't that name that had been bandied about. I think David Einhorn's I kept saying name. largely unknown, largely. <laughs> yeah. I know he's known. It's very flattering. <laughs> Unknown to you, it doesn't right. mean whoever's writing the article. It was, they were, which I was perfectly fine with. Right. I, I actually take some level of pride in that. So I, I would have preferred to stay relatively unknown, to be clear. But that was not an option at that point. So you feel like a lot's outside of your control, but then you right. have to just have to get over like it doesn't matter. Yeah. I saw using your high school picture. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> And, and I was not happy with my father because uh, I had told everyone in April, I told all of her friends, as long as you don't confirm anything. And they had a kid go by my father's house and uh, pretend to be a neighbor and confirm uh, my picture. And he thought it was a neighbor that he didn't know it was a reporter. They didn't oh, identify yeah. it. Anyway. underhand. Yeah, that's totally yeah, underhand. Yeah. But otherwise, dad, that would dad. Poor dad. <laughs> oh, that wouldn't even have existed. I was not happy with my father for a couple of days, but <laughs> yeah. The whole family wasn't being prepared to stuff for that. The thing my wife was the least happy with was they put a picture of our house with our address on, on I think that was Business Week, if I remember correctly. But, I you know, with that. again, with kids yeah, and everything, you just, there's a lot of weirdos out there. Yeah, so, but yeah. First couple of days, so you you started it Berkshire Hathaway, and I read an article that said that you were looking immediately for how you can add value. Yeah, um, yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> I think I think that's that's 
that's like such a good universal way of thinking about it though. Cause you know, you, you were like, okay, Warren knows how to pick stocks. Like wh what do I bring to it? And totally. I think yeah. everyone has that to some extent going on to roll in that mindset of like figuring out how you add value. Um, I, I really thought that was an interesting way of approaching it. What, mm -hmm. how did you do that? And where did you end up finding that? And how did, how did you get through that? Yeah. Well, you can't let, you have to, you have to be comfortable uh, in your own skin and you have to be comfortable with your own abilities and, uh, and, and you can't try to do it the way anyone else has done it, I guess would be the advice I give my kids and I try to give students. And, uh, if you try and change your swing, it, it isn't going to work. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that probably took me, and I thought a lot about it leading into, you know, day one. And, and I kind of wrestled with this and that and the other, because Warren handed me Lou Simpson's portfolio. It was, as I recall, it's two and a half billion or something like that. And it still had Lou's names in there. Mm. And uh, Warren said, I know some of these, I don't know others. And I said, okay, do you want to talk through them? And, and Warren said, no, it's yours. You do whatever you want with it. And so um, I thought, well, does it really mean that? You know, you can start, right. you, if you start down that path, you just second guess everything. And so I then uh, made a resolution to myself that uh, I was going to do it my way, uh, you know, and it's the only way I know, and I'm going to, I'm going to succeed or fail that way. And I, I knew, and I had enough confidence in myself having, you know, run a fund during the GFC, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We had good results that I knew this area well, and I could do that. And so, you know, MasterCard and Visa were my first names that I bought. And, um, and, uh, and we had some restrictions, particularly around insurance companies and stuff like that. Like I owned a lot of Chubb at my fund and, and when you own insurance, it's restrictions around owning insurance companies within insurance companies and stuff like that. But for the most part, um, got to do whatever I wanted, uh, in whatever amount I wanted, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so then that led to, um, then thinking about names and this was within, this is a good lesson, you know, or story with Warren or parable, which is, you know, we were going to lunch once, twice, sometimes more every week. And he was very much into obviously talking about Berkshire, both again, past, present, future, and also kind of like, hey, as you're out there looking for things, like we can acquire the whole thing if you really like it, right? Like think big, think big, like we have to think big to move the needle and so forth. And so that, like lessons like that are invaluable because without someone reinforcing that intuition that you already have, uh, and having someone with with uh, to reinforce the intuition, but also have the guardrails to to reinforce that intuition to know I can swing and I, and if I strike out, that's okay. Um, that's a hugely important lesson um, that I I try and, and still fast forward to today at Geico and so forth and support exactly of look you know. Um, if you're going to have a $3 billion position in something and you believe that big in it, like we should think about the whole thing and so forth. And so that, that led serendipitously to looking at acquisitions, both uh, large for, for Berkshire and then tuck-ins as we call them for the smaller operating companies. Um, and then also then that led to, so one thing leads to another leads to another as it always does in life. And then that led to working a lot more with our operating subsidiaries when they'd have questions that they didn't want to, you know, bounce off Warren. And then that leads to we're incredibly autonomous and decentralized, as everyone knows. So that led to things like pooled purchasing, pooled healthcare, which then led to Haven and things like that. So one thing leads to another leads to another. So that's kind of how and you just keep yeah, if you keep your head, if you worry. So what I what I try and stress kids, students, you know, Geico, et cetera, is like, if you just keep your head down and you focus on the process, things will take care of itself. Don't like, I feel like sometimes where people can get off uh, or spun up or whatever or off the rails is when they focus on the outcome instead of the process. And they're trying to not even sometimes it's shortcuts, but sometimes like, oh, I want this outcome. Now, how do I back solve for that? Mm -hmm. um, instead of just focusing on, you know, doing your best, keeping your head down one foot in front of the other, you know, boom, 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 boom. It's there's different methods for everybody, but that's what works for me. Which is actually kind of how you ended up in the role in the first place. As you yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm consistent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do that, like you keep your head down, then eventually yeah. you still get usually the outcome that you were wanting anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not always. That's usually. the key. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so two steps forward, ones? one step back sometimes. Mm -hmm. but it, did you have big swings that didn't work? Any that jumped to mind? 
At Berkshire or anywhere? Anywhere. Well, yeah. I mean, you always have. I mean, look, I mean, I think that uh, the story of Berkshire, I mean, look, Warren's very open about the mistakes, you know, Dexter, et cetera, et cetera. We've been fortunate most of them have been small, but uh, you absolutely get things wrong. No question about it. Um, both personal business, I mean, nobody's perfect, right? Mm-hmm. And if you try and be perfect, you know, and this is another thing I always tell the folks at Geico and students and everyone else is if you think you're batting a thousand, first of all, you're probably fooling yourself. Second of all, you're probably think about the opportunity cost and all the things that you're missing, you right? Miss. So you should yeah. be. And I think that when Warren talks about this with philanthropy is you want to be striking out a lot. So you want to be pushing the envelope. You want to be, I think of it like concentric circles, right? So I knew financials quite well, uh, banking, finance, insurance, et cetera. And then, okay, so I don't go from that to then suddenly something completely far afield, like technology, let's say. So you build concentric circles. So the first one I had done stuff with industrials, particularly industrials that had finance arms. So it's like, okay, CAT, Parley, GM, you know, et cetera. Okay, well, let's, if you can understand their finance arm, understanding the industrial aspect of it is, is generally simpler and more straightforward. And then you build out concentric circles from there and on top of that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So again, you just take one step at a time and you're going to make mistakes along the way, but you hope they're small to medium mistakes and mm-hmm. not, you know, I think again, like you try and avoid path dependencies. And I think people tend to underestimate uh, path dependencies. So you can say, oh, well, this thing has, people almost always overestimate uh, not only their own abilities, but also the, the the complexity that's involved in any task. And they can say, you ask anyone, what, what are the odds of that success? And they might say 90, 95%. When you break it down into its constituent parts, and then you ask them if there's 20 things and it's a multiplicative formula, and you ask them what the odds are for each one of those, it might also be 90 to 95%. Well, guess what? Multiply 90% by 20 and you're <laughs> under way under 50%. Yeah. So you try and think in, in terms of those uh, and you break it down and you chunk it out. And that's at least helped me to avoid mostly really, really big mistake. mistakes. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Can I jump back a bit on this uh, one? You go career? wherever you want. Okay. It's your show. <laughs> <laughs> back to the beginning. Cause I'm fascinated with some of the early, like the early relationships and careers that can be important later. And you particularly, you know, you're you're out of college. I think you started with the the securities, and then you went to progressive. Yep. And you're a pricing analyst. Yep. Right. Pretty, still pretty junior in your career. But yeah, for sure. You have a relationship with Charles Davis, who's a director at Progressive. That's a it's a big right. company. It's a big role, and um, that relationship ended up being important later in funding. You know, your own shop. Although I didn't know him when I was at Progressive. Oh, that's what I was going to, because I was wondering, like, how did you make that connection? And so you didn't know him then. I did not know him then. All right. That's interesting. Uh, I can answer the question about how I made the connection if that, if you want. Yeah. Cause I was like, how did, how did you meet, how did the, how do you nurture that relationship? But, but it was later. It was, yeah. So the way that I met Chuck and Steve, Steve Friedman, who ran Goldman uh, in the nineties was that uh, they were, it's now Stone Point Capital. They were, it was MMC Capital, MMC's Marsh McLennan, the big broker. Um, I think they're still the, along with Aon, the two largest insurance brokers in the world. Uh, they had a private equity arm that, that Marsh created uh, due to capacity constraints when large hurricanes would come through and so forth. And this goes okay. back to, I believe, Hurricane Andrew in Florida and so forth in the early 90s. So they, uh, and this goes back to the Spitzer investigation of the insurance industry, they had, they caught wind, obviously, still being part of uh, Marsh McLennan at the time, Marsh, the brokers, the insurance companies, everybody was in Spitzer's crosshairs, right? And so they were, and this is all public, um, uh, they then reached out, they, they were looking for the new, the next CEO at, at Marsh to get out of just like AIG and everybody else to get out of Spitzer's crosshairs. They were looking at Steve and Chuck and they were trying to get a gauge of what their future looked like, both as being part of Marsh and whether, you know, what Marsh's future looked like and so forth and so on. So anyway, long story short, they reached out to people they knew in the industry and said, who's 
really, really on top of this, almost like an investigative reporter type. Uh -huh. that, and I'd been on it for maybe two, two and a half years at that point. Uh, and I'd been short Marsh and Fannie and, and uh, the GSEs. And Steve had happened to be on the board of, of Fannie and, as well, and um, because there were some Goldman connections there. And so anyway, their contacts had put them in touch with me on uh, – and they, so we met originally again, not unlike Charlie and Warren kind of serendipitously, Hey, we hear you're the, the, they call it the ax and investing on, uh, on Marsh and the Spitzer situation. So okay. we sat down and had a couple meetings on where do you think this is going? How severe is it? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how we originally met. And then that led into discussions around Marsh was my biggest short. Fanny was my, was one B and, uh, and, and then that Fanny ended up completely unrelated to Steve, to be clear, to have a lot of accounting, you know, uh, improprieties. And, uh, and, and I was, uh, I was a couple of years uh, in front of that as well. So we had a good discussion about that. And then that ultimately led to them saying, you know, we've never found anyone we wanted to start a fund with, but we want to do it with you. And, um, and I was looking to leave the fund that I was at at the time. I'd been there for three years. I had my own track record and, uh, but I was, if people thought I was unknown when I came to Berkshire, I was really, unknown. really? Yeah. <laughs> they don't know what unknown was. So, <laughs> so that led, that's how, that's how that whole uh, relationship, the genesis of it was. Okay. That yeah. was, that's super interesting. You're similar to, I think a lot of people at um, Berkshire Hathaway, you're, you, you read a lot, you consume a lot, you've kind of talked about that. How does that happen now, though? Because you've got yeah. multiple roles, and I, I yeah. are you still hitting your five hundred a week? And I am. Where? It's just different. Are you it's podcasting? Just different. It? <laughs> no. It's, well, I do. I do listen to a lot of podcasts, but uh, but no, I don't count those as reading. No. Uh, I'm not cheating. So now I would say. 80 or 90 percent of it is geico i mean certainly 100 percent okay. of my time is is geico right. i'm it adds up to more than 100 to be clear but uh but it's uh during the day uh i'm 110 percent geico it's and i probably get through i mean i don't count but it's it's well over 500 pages a week uh, of geico material that's a different kind of reading right because right. you're going through specific roadmaps, tech plans, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I just went through a 16 page, very, very detailed deck with APIs and, you know, roadmaps and so forth. But uh, versus reading a 10K, reading a transcript, reading an annual report, a trade magazine, et cetera. So, but I do the investing stuff at nights to relax <laughs> on the weekends. Uh, Warren and I meet oftentimes on Saturdays. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's when I do the investing stuff. So it's, I probably read more. It's just a very different composition now. Um, it's just the nature of there's, there's similarities, but there's a lot of differences, obviously, between investing and, and operations. Anything you've read in the last year or so that you'd recommend? Oh. Last year, Ted gave us trillion dollar triage, which mm -hmm. which was great. We did a book club internally on it. Well, uh, investing wise, or just anything, it's probably general. Yeah. Well, you know, there, the movie's coming out soon, but one of my favorite books that I've read in the last this might have even been more than a year ago now was Killers of the Flower Moon, and uh, DiCaprio, and it's on. I think it's on Apple TV. It's coming out right after the annual meeting, and I haven't seen the reviews for it yet, but I got to believe it. The book is one of the best books I've ever read. Yeah, it's right. I couldn't put Mark it down, it down. Okay. Uh, and it's about the origins of the FBI and going to uh -huh. the Osage Indians in Oklahoma. It's just absolutely phenomenal. I used to be able to get through about. It was about a book a week. I'd, I'd nail pretty much 48 books a year for quite a while there. And last year, you know, it's a struggle now to get over 12. Uh, it's just such my, I'm literally maxed out in every way, shape or form. And any, any marginal time obviously goes to the family. Mm -hmm. Then what rolls over goes marginal to cycling time. or running or, <laughs> yeah, right, over and above That's my, my equity tranche. But, uh, but uh no, I've, I've got a long, long list of book reviews that I could, uh, I mean, there's so many, but it's uh, now, oh, I used to have a really challenging one. time. If I started a book, I'd feel like I didn't really fully appreciate sunk cost, apparently, at the time. <laughs> I would have feel the need to finish it regardless. And now if I can only get through 12, if I'm a couple chapters in and it's a dud, I move on. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I still read, the one thing I still read that I've always read from that, those days at Warren at Columbia is Jim's uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer. It's a phenomenal publication. It's very widely followed on the street. Um, 
he's a phenomenal writer. Um, I think a lot of people now read Matt Levine, you know, on uh, Bloomberg. I gave it to Warren a couple of years ago and, and his writing's very pithy and witty and so forth. And now it, he's, everybody reads it and, and uh, he's, he, he kind of becomes the go-to source on whether it's Silicon Valley Bank or what have you. So, uh, Do you read anything you think nobody else reads? Uh, Maybe you don't want to share that. Maybe that's what that's no, the No, no. I mean, <laughs> look, I don't think a lot of people read, um, you know, I bet, I bet, and, and I don't mean this, it's going to come off the wrong way. So I don't mean it to come off this way, but, but I think most people would probably be surprised how few people actually read annual reports and, and, uh, 10 Ks and, oh, and, uh, mm-hmm, so forth. Yeah. I think that let alone trade magazines and so forth, like I still read trade magazines and, um, and they're a phenomenal source of information. You know, I mean, if Becca is quoted in a furniture a trade magazine, like, okay, now you know what she says, what she believes. She's likely to call you back because she, you know, you've got a lead in, you know, et cetera. And so I've used that for 25 years plus uh, to get information just as a journalist would kind of that. So you call, so you might read something, someone Absolutely. does a quote, you might just follow up with them, pick up the phone and say, I used to do it myself that. to be yeah. clear. And now I have analysts. You to do? Do it okay. for me. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I, I miss doing it myself also to be clear. And people pick up and just yeah. talk. And, yeah, yeah. It's surprising. I mean, nine out of 10 or something like yeah. that. It's really, and, and that's where you get, that gives you the, 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 there's in investing, there's a quantitative and there's a qualitative. And I, I've always said, like, if you, if you're really thinking about it, there should be two courses. Right. And I think Warren has said this too. It's, it's how to value a security, that's kind of relatively easy, right? The math is not complicated, and that's the quantitative. The qualitative is the really, really um, unique part that that's the secret sauce, right? And you could you can compare it to being a, a chef or something like that. And you can give our two chefs a recipe, and 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 the master chef is going to cook it very differently than I would. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, when Warren and I would technique. talk about, yeah, right. And it matters. Yeah, like okay. that's where details matter. And so when Warren and I would talk about stocks, acquisitions, whatever we talk, it's 95, 99% qualitative, qualitative, qualitative. And that, that comes down to all the stuff that he talks about in terms of moats, barriers to entry, all the stuff. You're not getting that necessarily in a filing or an annual report. You get a sense for it. It's a starting point, but, but, you know, you want to work um, essentially inside out. And I think, uh, which is what I mean by that is starting with the details. And then those details form the foundation from which you can build upon that you then gain a qualitative understanding. Uh And I personally feel like too many people start outside in. And what I mean by that is they're starting with a narrative. They're starting because they heard something from someone or they saw it on CNBC or they um, read a research report or what have you. And if you start with any narrative, you know, the, the, one of the real cognitive dissonances that we can all have or blind spots is that then you you start forming all of your opinions based on a loose narrative that you form that was completely erroneous to begin with. So, you know, if you were, it, it's no different than, you know, the scientific, you know, process. You don't start with a narrative and try and prove it. You start with the facts and build it from there. I saw where you said you try to, cl- like, not look, you try to clear the noise of the narrative. I don't, because yeah. It, it, in, until you've, done your own research to, to build your story? I don't even look at the market cap of a name. So a game that I've always played with myself is like, look at the name, do your work, uh, build up what you would buy that entire business for. And, um, you know, 80, 90% of the time, you're within a 20% of, of what the enterprise value or the market cap trades for. But sometimes just completely... Uh, and MasterCard, you know, is a good example of that. I think it came public for three or three and a half billion. And I didn't, I purposely didn't want to know or, and did not know and, or hear that at the time. And I valued it at like 30 or something like that. And, and I those thought, are the ones you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then when I was shorting, vice versa, right? Like, yeah. well, this thing isn't worth anything. And <laughs> yet it's yeah. trading for a hundred billion or something, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That way you don't you know you avoid the anchoring effect that way, right? Yeah. And and once you're anchored, you're anchored. You can't kind of undo it. The genie's out of the bottle. Yeah. Then yeah. you're just a variant on whatever that totally. Yeah. And you start double double questioning yourself and say, well, you know, <laughs> they think this and why don't I think that? And now you're just wrapped around an axle. Yeah. yeah. I I read where you talked about the importance of understanding the parts of the business that are dying. Yeah. Which was super interesting because I think we're always focused on the growth and what's mm-hmm. new and what's yeah. and, but 
uh, I'd love to hear any more of your thoughts around that. Of, of and I think that's from the you. Were, I think you were talking about that from the business side, like your mm -hmm. CEO side versus investing side. But. Yeah, uh, I don't know where I said that. I don't remember, but uh, I would say a couple thoughts come to mind. One is uh, every business has uh, a golden goose. Doesn't mean it's one golden goose. Sometimes you have multiple golden gooses. But I think an error that people make is that not God knows I've made this myself. Is you look at the whole thing versus uh, really getting down again into the constituent parts, into the details and saying, oh, well, this makes that work. And because this makes that work, this then makes everything else work. So it's there's a domino effect or a compounding effect or whatever. Every business is can be similar, but also different. And so really understanding that. Um, and then also conversely, understanding where um, the risks are that people don't appreciate. And so uh, one of the things I remember both Warren and Charlie and I discussed in our first meetings was, um, in fact, the, the first book I gave both of them is this book called Ubiquity by Mark Buchanan. And it's about uh, power laws and fractal laws and how kind of low frequency, high severity, you know, and the further up you go on severity, it's not linear. We, we all tend to think linearly uh, about life and about risk, but in fact, it's, it's much more about a power law, which is, you know, a, per, uh, a logarithmic type function. And so when you, when you double the severity, generally the frequency goes down, you know, by a larger factor. Uh, almost with anything, whether it's uh, catastrophes like hurricanes or war or, you know, anything. It could be good things too, by the way. But uh, but so looking for that and thinking about that in the business um, in terms of where they're taking risks, where they're essentially, in the words that I remember both stuck with Warren and Charlie, were, were um, having way out of the money puts. You know, a lot of people have, um, you say that again. Yes. Yeah, so, sorry. Selling way out of the money puts. And okay. so you can, if a, if a, and you can do this in life, right. Is essentially like borrowing from the future or ignoring a risk is, is having selling a way out of the money put you'll win nine out of 10 times or I'm making things up, but that 10th time you get tattooed, right? You lose everything. And I think the closest analogy is how Warren and Charlie talk about the insurance business. And, and I think most specifically, maybe even last year, Charlie maybe was the one who commented with the brilliance of Ajit is, is not the premiums that he's grown and the, and the money that he's made and so forth and so on. It's avoiding, you know, selling cheap out of the money puts. That's where the real, um, rubber meets the road because anyone can do that. And you see it in banking, you know, all the time. You see it in finance all the time. You see it when hedge funds blow up, banks blow up, et cetera. They're essentially selling way out of the money puts. They're betting that something extreme doesn't happen. And sometimes, look, we all make mistakes, but oftentimes the risk is right there. It's very obvious. It's just they've completely mispriced it or they've not even thought about it or taken it into account. Sometimes it's greed, you know, it's time horizons get arbitraged and, you know, Obviously, Charlie talks about, you know, bankers having, you know, you get paid annual bonuses versus taking five plus year risks. So I've always been really, really fascinated with that. And my mind has always worked very much that way. And so um, so that when I look at businesses, look at companies, I look for those. And then so I start at the edges. Right. And so I look for those where are they taking those risks that are laying below the surface? Um, you know, you GE Capital was a, is a very poignant example that everybody you know is aware of. And then on the other end, you look for the uh, the you, you look for asymmetries. Basically, you're uh -huh. looking for asymmetric risk. You're looking for asymmetric upside that that is also unaccounted for. Yeah, does that make sense? It does. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I did miss the whole part about it. You want to move over to the Berkshire Charlie? Yeah, I think the reason we're here. Yeah, <laughs> one of the main reasons we're here is the Berkshire Hathaway Conference coming up. Um, it's theme this year, the 70s. You were born in 71. How much influence did you have on the theme? Was this none. <laughs> Absolutely none. <laughs> no. <laughs> I actually honestly didn't know that was the theme. Oh, you, you I did? just learned that. No. Did so you? Yeah, that's right. I, yeah, you learn something new every day. I checked that box today. <laughs> something back. 
<laughs> well, uh, we asked Ted this last year, but there's obviously a huge buzz about the annual event every single year. Yeah. Um, tens of thousands of people make the trip into Omaha for it. How exciting does it feel for you and the rest of the Berkshire Hathaway team every year? Is this just yeah. something that where you're actually like jazzed and ready for? Yeah. For me, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends and sometimes family that come in for it that, you know, it's always great. We have people stay with us and friends that I've known for decades and so forth. Uh, last year, both my best friend from Columbia, as well as the best man in each other's wedding, uh, came in, stayed with us at our house and so forth, which was fantastic. Uh, and there's a lot of people that are uh, friends, acquaintances that you only get to see maybe once a year that are coming from overseas, Australia, Asia, you know, et cetera, et cetera, Europe, that, that uh, it's a chance to see them and kind of a one and only touch point that's better than over the phone. And then uh, now that I'm running Geico, uh, we have 30 or 40 people that come in that are on the floor, sales service professionals that are there to help existing and new customers. And then I also use it as an opportunity to have in, even though Warren comes out uh, twice a year to Geico, it's the only subsidiary he does that for, I also use it to bring a dozen or so of our senior folks out uh, as kind of a reward and a treat. So last year, it was all my direct reports. This year, we went through a big reorg about six months ago, and the people that were really instrumental in getting that over the line, I'm bringing out. We're having dinner Saturday night together, so uh, it's a win all around. Yeah, I love that. I, we've talked a little bit about your networking. I love if you can speak to, like, you seem to value these relationships, these things that you've had over years. Can you speak to how you approach networking? Because a lot of things, I think a lot of people look at it as a chore, but it seems to be yeah. not your approach at all. No, I almost have a little bit of a um, negative, like uh, when I hear the word networking, mm -hmm. I have a little bit of a, and I don't want to offend anyone, like a, like a, not a vitriolic reaction, but a negative reaction, mm -hmm. right? Because there's, again, there's like process. Like there's an underlying yeah, that there's some motive yeah, and that you're right. like, a, like yeah. a sleight of hand, yeah. right? Yeah. So I, 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 yeah, I, I guess I'm going to sound like a broken record. I go back to like the process versus outcome thing. So I don't look at, I, I, I don't think, I, I don't think I've ever actively used the word networking. I just, you know, I have friends and people that I enjoy. And then there's, um, there's people that you interact with and, and, uh, and, and one thing leads to another and sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And uh, so I just look at it that way. And one thing, you know, leads to another. And uh, I think sometimes as people get older, they can narrow their world. And one of the things I've learned a lot from Warren and Charlie and, and others over the years, but one of the things I've really learned from Warren is he's absolutely spectacular about keeping a very wide, um, what I'd call aperture, but then also um, you only get so much time, right? So focusing your time on the people that you enjoy spending it with and who are kind of uh, make you feel good and are happy and accretive and, you know, accretive in a happy sense, not a monetary sense to be clear. Uh, but, but, uh, and, and the, you know, and that's why you'd much rather do that. And then, you know, and you don't repeat, you know, the people you don't want to spend time with that then, then try and create a narrow aperture, so to speak. So um, I've tried to uh, try to learn some from that. The wide aperture and, the idea behind that you think is just being open to talking to a wide amount of people and different from different within, within industries you know, there's and always, areas. Time is valuable. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's uh, there's always a trade off there. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and I'm, 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 introverted to be clear uh i'm a pretty you wouldn't know person. from your oh I, I, then i hide it well because i'm quite introverted uh I, I i like sitting in a room and reading and so forth i do enjoy people but i probably don't go out of my way as much as i should that's a blind spot of mine to um to initiate things okay. um and so but once it's initiated i feel like i have a decent read i'm sure most people feel like they have a decent read for other people and i'm pretty good at either reinforcing those or, or cutting it off yeah. or whatever so um and then it just builds over time you know you meet friends through other friends and you know so forth and so on so and people tend to be pretty like-minded right so did you participate in the berkshire hathaway march madness I did. Yeah, we had, I forget exactly <laughs> how many people at Geico. We got pretty good participation. It was, we have about 35,000 employees and it's, I, I don't want to quote it exactly, but it, it was tens of thousands that, that we had participated in. We got pretty good participation from the, from the subs. I remember the day Warren came down and with COVID, you know, all these dates get skewed. So I used to be pretty locked in on these things, but I don't know when our first one was 
six, seven, eight years ago or something like that. And he kind of, uh, re, you know, he would come down five, six times a day or whatever when I was in the office every day before I was running Geico and before COVID. And he said, you know, this is what I'm thinking about. You know, what do you what do you think the odds are? And I said, well, it's, it's actually pretty relatively easy to calculate the odds because you've got a pretty good history on one versus 16, seven ver or eight versus nine, et cetera, et cetera. And I did a pretty quick, um, you know, calculation on it. And I think Ashit and, and Don Worcester did as well. And we were all pretty, pretty close. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think anyone's ever won the entire thing and no, gotten a perfect no. pool. And, you know, as you guys know, there's a lot more competition today than there's ever been in terms of that. So, yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. It's a lot flatter. So, you know, you get more upsets, obviously, which then extends the odds even more and so forth mm -hmm. and so on. But stuff like that's fun. I think it's it really fun. fun. How yeah. did you do? Oh, I did terrible. I was, out, I was out. I don't know if it was the second game or the third game, but I was out. <laughs> Whatever the first upset was. Right. Same. Same. Makes us feel a little better. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's impossible. <laughs> I think mean, it's meant to win. It's just meant to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, um, I, one of the things that we're curious about, obviously, we've talked a, a lot about your Berkshire career. Um, when you think about what you've achieved in your career overall, mm -hmm. um, starting your own hedge fund, Castle Point, all the accomplishments at Berkshire, now CEO of Geico, do you think the 18-year-old Todd would believe you if you went back and like, was trying to tell him, hey, here's this thing? Oh, hell no. No, no, absolutely not. Uh, April and I talk about this sometimes. I mean, because uh, we've done it together. And, um, and, and uh, you know, you never accomplish any of this on your own, to be clear, right? So one of the, one of the really, really amazing feelings, I, I think that, um, and this is going to sound cliche or cheesy or something, but I mean it, is um, is the feeling of gratitude that you have when you accomplish, uh, when, when A, when people see something in you that maybe you don't see in yourself, right? When I, my first outside investor that invested when I started my fund and they had absolutely no reason to take a chance on me versus giving money to, you know, any one of the other names that the media, you know, likes is, uh, you know, I mean, that's, I'll never, you'll never forget that. Right. And, and so, and the people that mentored me and brought me along and, and so forth and so on. So, I mean, you don't even remotely, you're, you're really, you're just, you really are standing on the shoulders of others as much as that sounds like a cliche. And so no, under no circumstances would I, would I have ever even remotely, uh, believed any of it. I remember sitting at progressive, um, in the nineties back when, um, and you still kind of had to buy mutual funds before index funds were big. And, uh, I was in, I think they were like Dean Witter or Morgan Stanley funds or something like that. And of course you had to have a broker cause you know, and that's the way things were done. I remember asking for the prospectus and apparently uh, no one really ever looked at those things. And, <laughs> and I read it and then I actually like read the background on each of the managers and, and they all had MBAs from Columbia, Harvard, you know, Ivy League schools and so forth. And are asking my broker, I said, oh, you know, I, I love securities and I love investing and so forth. Like, what would it take to do that? And he basically said, oh, you've got no chance in hell, kid, you know, like just <laughs> forget about it, you know. And so, um, you know. It's a little, little do you know. So again, you just one thing in front of the other. And I, I remember thinking at that time, I started studying for the GMAT and, uh, and I, I, I loved my job at Progressive and so forth and so on. And I had a pretty good career trajectory going. And uh, um, Glenn Renwick, who went on to be the CEO shortly thereafter, we were kind of three doors down from each other. He was, to be clear, many, many levels above me. But, uh, but it was... Um, it was not an easy decision, even getting into Columbia to, to forego, you know, that known income. It was burden on my wife who was working at the time, moving to New York, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We pushed back having kids for two years. So there's, there's sacrifices along the way too. Uh, and so, you know, I guess to come back and answer your question, like, no, under no circumstance, I've been very, and there's a lot of luck, right? To be clear, there's a lot of luck involved. If I didn't call Charlie, if, 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 you know, a million things had to happen the way that they did when I got to, uh, way is a, is a interesting, uh, tie into Berkshire when, when I started at Columbia, um, 
I, you know, progressive back then did not have uh, public calls, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was pretty tight with our many of our general managers because we had rolled out credit and telematics and so forth. And, and I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and spearheaded a lot of that. So I was going to business school. We had some general managers who had gone to Chicago, Columbia, Harvard, et cetera. And they said, you should talk to uh, Weston Hicks, who was at that time, um, he was the number one II rated insurance analyst at JP Morgan. And so, uh, you know, here I am. If you told me then, I'd be on the board of JP Morgan. And Weston went on to be the CEO of Allegheny, which, of course, we just purchased last year. And Weston took the time to meet with me, knowing full well I could not in any way should. Now, I knew a little bit about Progressive that he wanted to, you know, fish around about. But I mean, he's, you know, he said, oh, he put me in touch mm-hmm. with these guys at Blue Ridge Capital, which was one of the big Tiger Cubs, and said they're really doing a lot in insurance right now. And uh, and you know insurance and they know investing. And so it was a way you look for win-wins and so forth. And that one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. And so um, that's that's been the story of my life. Do you think, though, because I, I get what your point on, on luck, but at the same time, and, and we're tracing back like, okay, you, you know, you ended up with this, this cold call to Charlie, but yeah. did you have 50 of those sort of where you put, you had took an action to put yourself in a place where yeah. things could happen for you. And then, because when you trace it back, you only see the one, mm-hmm. but my thought is my guess is your luck came well, from putting 30 of those out there, a thousand of those out there. Yeah. I won't lie. I'm a hard worker. Yeah. And I have a lot of grit. Um, I've got a lot of blind spots uh, mm-hmm. and I've got a lot of weaknesses, but but I have those qualities. And so there's that probably Mark Twain saying about, you know, preparation is your best Mm -hmm. luck or something along those lines. And so there is absolutely, um, you know, look, I had to have the substance when I met Charlie or when I met Weston or when I met the guys at Blue Ridge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was very green in, in, you know, many of those instances, uh, you know, I remember Weston actually saying, uh, Oh, you want to be an investor? I'll put you in touch with, you know, a hedge fund. And I honestly didn't know. And he said a tiger cub. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know what a tiger cub was. You know, I mean, I'd been a, a I'd been a pricing analyst, a progressive. <laughs> I, mean, I, I knew about investing. I didn't know what a tiger cup was. I was three standard deviations away from where my knowledge right. base was at the time. But concentric so, circles weren't and, there and yet. And for people to be patient enough with you. So I mean, it's both. Yes. It's both for sure. But yeah. you had to have a. I, I'm sure there's situations where no one did call you back, and you. Oh, for dead, sure. Or you were in a room that you didn't get. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You put of, enough of those out there, and. Yeah, one of the things I worry about with this. You know, it's easy to always say, like, you know, to be dour about the generation or whatever. Sometimes I worry that we're making our generation too soft because we can make things so easy on them mm-hmm. and, and that we don't build up enough grit. Um, and, and look, that comes with having a society that's more wealthy and is moving along. Not that everybody is by any stretch, but look, that's where you get, um, I don't, I I think grit, it's the whole marshmallow test going back to Stanford and everything. Right. I mean, it's, that's like the one thing that I think they've statistically proven, uh, has a correlation with success in life is that ability to not have that marshmallow and you get two, if you wait 15 minutes or whatever the Mm -hmm. number was, but, uh, having grit goes along. I mean, I think I was Angela Duckworth wrote an entire book and so forth on it. So, uh, but you know, you, you, you make your own luck too. There's definitely some of that for sure. For sure. We got to ask you about the home. That's our thing. Yeah. 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 My Um, wife would argue my home is work, but (laughs) Well, speaking of her, you met her at FSU. That's right. Um, I imagine that you've moved quite a bit. You mentioned Connecticut at one point, obviously from Florida, Connecticut, here. How have you and the family made all of like, these new places feel like a home? I think, you know, I'm going off the top of my head, which is always dangerous. I think we may have moved. For some reason, I'm thinking 16 times. Wow. It's wow. a lot. Yeah. It's a yeah. lot. Um, we met in September of 92 in a class at Florida State. And we got married in uh, May of 98. And so we've known each other over 30 years. Um, She was, so our oldest is a sophomore in college and is turning 20 next month. And he will be the same age as when April and I met. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Like just to like, even for those words Uh to come out of my mouth. So, um, we moved, we, now we rented a lot, you know, every two years and that kind of thing. We didn't own our own home until, uh, 
the home that I then owned when I accepted, when I started my own fund and started the Berkshire job. So that was owed two or oh three or something like that so um not because we couldn't afford it but just because we were you know renting and so forth Mm -hmm. and so um but sorry i missed what what was the second part of your question the second part was about like how do you make those places all those 16 places that you've oh oh, oh, yeah feel like a home oh well it's it's her to be clear uh (laughs) you know as many people say the better half i say the better 99 percent and so (laughs) she she yeah yeah i highly recommend it (laughs) especially when it's true um no that's the old saying happy happy wife happy life Mm -hmm. and so um when i so i talked to her about let's just use berkshire as an example to stick with that and so i was flying out uh once every other week or something like that to come and uh and i would say the week warren and i would talk etc cetera, etc cetera. this is 2011 and then uh michael our oldest was in second grade and he started and so here's here's a great testament to april she says let's go out to Omaha for the summer just so we can all be together. Uh-huh. And, you know, huge sacrifice for her, right? We've got a house on the water. We have a boat. We love Connecticut. We got our friends, et cetera, et cetera. But she wanted the family to be together. Mm-hmm. And so like, again, it comes back to sacrifice. It's not just my sacrifice. It's her sacrifice. And so she comes out, we spend the summer together. She sees how great it is. Um, we make fast friends, et cetera, et cetera. And then one thing leads to another. And before you know it, she says, well, why don't we move out here? The schools are great. It's a great sense of community. Omaha, you know, is amazing. And, uh, and we were very, very fortunate to have, uh, you know, f- people like Warren and his daughter, Susie and so forth that introduced us to lifelong friends of theirs, like, like the Blumpkins. And then you meet people like Rory and Becca and so forth. So, yeah, again, one thing leads to another, right? And, and that, that makes it a lot, lot easier. Well, you have to ask, you moved to Omaha. Did you buy from NFM? I did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> as, as, as Becca and Rory know, our entire house is NFM. It looks like this showroom right out here. <laughs> Even the TV. Do you have a favorite? Any favorite? Favorite TV? you know what? Yes, you can say favorite TV. You just got a, you know, and I should know this, but April, is either, do you guys sell 90-inch? I, we, yeah, we have some, like a hundred. Yeah, giant now. It's either a ninety like or yeah, yeah. It's crazy. I remember when thirty two used right, to be big. Right, like right. It's, like a it's, forty two inch TV. Was, uh, <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh! <laughs> now they're like over double that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So we have a I don't know. Let's call it a ninety inch TV yeah. that we just got from NFM. So nice, nice yeah. good job. Yeah. <laughs> You have time for one more? I got all the time in the okay. world. <laughs> fire away. Okay. Well, uh, Geico has had some great commercials over the years. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I think they really pioneered that approach with the the gecko. Yeah. Um, and using humor. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite either mascot from, from Geico or yeah. commercial? Oh, boy. You know, it's like you're it's supposed to be like your children. That, you know, really, it's like sacrilege <laughs> to say this is my favorite. So, But just between us. Uh, obviously the gecko is, is a favorite, uh, and the guy's just so adorable. And then I would say the ones that come to mind, actually, like I'm a big fan of hump day, uh, oh, yeah. hump day, Wednesday, hump yeah. day, uh-huh. and I'm a big fan of caveman. And, uh-huh. uh, and then, you know, there was the one with, uh, uh the, the pig, yes. uh, rolling yeah. out the window with the, <laughs> yeah. with the pinwheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a big okay. fan of that one too. And we have a whole new line, uh, coming out soon, uh, called Frenemy. That uh, I don't want to spoil it for uh-huh. our marketing department, but I just saw them uh, this week, and they're absolutely fantastic. So, oh, yeah. Somebody yeah. 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 yeah, perfect. Yeah. Well, um, Todd, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for, for having podcast. me. This, this was a lot really of fun. fun. It was a real masterclass. I think we learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, welcome back anytime. By the way, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> uh, um, with beer. And yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> and I want to thank everyone who's listening at home. I encourage you to go to nfm.com to learn more about our company shop 24 7 for today's top furnishing styles we'll be back again soon with another episode till then remember home is what you make it thanks for joining us today for i am home with tyler weiskopf hillary waltamath and becca sudbeck no one knows home quite like nfm so if you'd like more information on home design at nfm please check out nfm.com and leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice